You know there are atheists. You know what atheists are. They don't believe. They're firm in their belief there is no God. Then you have agnostics. They're just not sure. And I think you could add a category of um, what I might call underbelievers. They sort of kind of believe in something. Like if you said, you believe in God? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they have no clue who God is, what he's about, what he requires. And if you asked any of those people, atheists, agnostics, or the unbelie- underbelievers, uh, how they could have peace with God, I think all three would answer you, why would I need to do that? I'm not at war with God. I don't know that God's at war with me. I've been a pretty good Joe. Haven't done, haven't killed anyone that didn't deserve it. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be. I don't think they would understand that there's a problem there. Now, if you have read the Bible, uh, you, you would quickly realize that a holy God, and we've sung about that, that a holy God cannot be simply approached without mediation, without there being some way of reconciling, some mediator through whom we can come. Look back at the Old Testament and think about the whole Old Old Testament worship system, all the things involved in just being able to approach God. And do you remember all those times people tried to get around and do it a different way? (laughs) How did that work out for them? (laughs) You think about Korah's rebellion, Not so good. You know, the earth opened up and swallowed them that rebelled against Moses and his leadership, him as a mediator for them, and then fire fell down from heaven just to kind of top it off and make sure they were gone. You remember that group? You have Miriam, and this is crazy to me that that then Miriam and Aaron at some point thought, yeah, you know, maybe it should be the three of us, not just Moses. And then she was struck with leprosy. Think about the Philistines when they had the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't quite Indiana Jones. I mean, their faces didn't melt, but they broke out in tumors when they, when they had the Ark in their possession. And you could just go, you could think of, you know, Uzzah reached out and touched the, the Ark, and, and it just goes on. You could not approach a holy God because by nature we are unholy and we are at enmity with God. In the book of Colossians, Paul is refuting kind of a Jewish Christian heresy of, of some kind. And they went into great detail, it appears, about uh, you know, uh, harsh treatment of the body, various kinds of rituals, visions that they had, angels, heavenly temple, and all of that. And whatever they believed about Jesus, it, he took a back seat. And Paul is basically telling them, look, if you want to approach God, if you want to be reconciled to God, there is only one way for that to happen. There is no reconciliation with God, no approach to God, no reconciliation apart from his work in Christ. No ritual is going to get you there. It doesn't matter how harshly you treat your body or any other way you devise that you think, well, God's going to have to be good enough with this or that thing. It doesn't work. Now, I think this background will help us to understand the passage. It's, it's kind of knowing what Paul is pushing off against that, that gives us clarity about some of these things that are harder uh, maybe to understand. And as you read the passage, you want to at least mentally intone phrases like this. And I'll just, I just want to pull out a few phrases really quick that, that, we, that you might have missed. But um, in those short few verses, in him... Through him, his cross, his body of flesh, his death before him. Who's the him? We're talking about Christ. We're talking about Christ as opposed to all other ways. So the first reason that there is no reconciliation apart from him is that he, 
is pleased for his fullness to dwell only in Christ. God is pleased for his fullness to dwell only in Christ. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that goes back to what we were looking at last time. Remember, we had this very high Christology. I'll use that again because I told you what it was last week. But it's that theology concerning who Christ is. The very high Christology. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn Oh, he's over all creation. He's over all things preeminent, and in him the fullness of God dwells, and in him alone. Think, think of the false teachers. The false teachers put all this emphasis on some kind of a... What we, when, this is piecing it together. Um, Paul gives us little hints about what it was they taught. But there seems to have been a heavenly temple in their mind with angels. It is possible that the angels, even in their teaching functioned as some kind of intermediary between them and God. Can I say very point blank so that you don't miss this? There is no other mediator than Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says that exact thing, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's the exact image of God. Um, he is the, the fullness of God, and yet he is also man. There is one bridge. Are you, are you catching on to the... Yeah, it's pretty clear, right? One bridge, one mediator. It's like uh, the end of World War II, near the end when they were pushing the Germans back. The Germans finally started retreating. You know, after D-Day, they eventually get, they get, they get shoved back, and they, come, they retreat across the Rhine River, which historically had been this, this huge, like it was kind of like, like the Great Wall of China. It was this, this uh, impenetrable sort of geographic um, boundary. And they retreat across there and they blew up all the bridges, but they missed the bridge at Raymogen. One bridge, one bridge. Guess where the Allies went across? The one bridge, right? That, that was the only option. It was the only bridge still there. And that was the only way across. Jesus is the only bridge. Paul states, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Can you think of any Old Testament passage that might sound something like that? And if you say, no, you don't, I understand that because I didn't really think of this passage either until I got to studying. And uh, it's interesting. The Greek language in Colossians is mirrored or mirrors (laughs) Psalm 68, verses 16 through 17. Listen to what it says. And he's comparing... Jerusalem and, and the mount, the temple mount of Jerusalem to the, the mountains of Bashan, which were much bigger and grander. Oh, they were higher and, and sort of the, they were proud, if you will. This is what he writes. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? This is where he desires to dwell, right? His desire to abode. Yes, there where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousand upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So the mountain that he's talking about here in the passage is the mount, the temple mount. It's Jerusalem compared to any other mountain. Curiously, it says in 68, 17, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Do you see an issue with that at all? First of all, it's a good distance from Sinai to Jerusalem. Second of all, sticking a mountain inside of a temple is is pretty hard to do. What's it saying? It's saying that there where God was pleased to dwell 
in Sinai, meeting with Moses, meeting with the people of Israel, giving them the Ten Commandments, and all of that, that that surrounded his glory and his presence there, that metaphorically speaking, that has transferred and been moved to Jerusalem. Now God's dwelling is there in the temple. And so what's happening here is Paul's using that very same language, which a Jewish person probably would not have missed in, in that day. And he's saying that in the same way that, that the, the presence of God was pleased to dwell in Jerusalem as opposed to Sinai, say, now we can say that he dwells in Christ. That's where God's fullness dwells. Do you see the richness of this? The great meaning of our faith is not about a heavenly sanctuary that we can have visions to, you know, with the help of angels, enter into. It's got nothing to do with temples, per se, as we think of them. It's not even got to do with the temple at Jerusalem, which has been gone since 70 A.D. God was pleased to dwell in the perfect God-man, his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That is necessary for us to understand. Under the Old Testament, there had to be a sanctuary with various cleansing rituals for a person to approach God on God's terms. Now that approach is through the Son, who is the image of the invisible God in whom all fullness dwells. Good, good so far under the first point here? You're tracking with me? All right, There's no, there, there is no reconciliation apart from Jesus in him The fullness of God dwells, not in a temple somewhere, but in the temple of Christ, who is the very image of God. We're going to move on to the second point, which is kind of a second reason uh, to fill this out. But I have to confess something before I jump into it. And um, this this was really a once in a great while kind of thing. I got to verse 20, and I spent about a day there. I'm not speaking metaphorically. Like, I spent almost a day just on verse 20. I went back and looked after I was done, after the smoke had cleared and the dust had settled in my office. Did any of you see that driving by the church? Big cloud or, yeah. I went back and I thought, how long did this take me to come to some kind of conclusion about this verse? How many books did I pull off my shelf? And I went back and I counted and I pulled 11 of them off and read what 11 different authors. And then I'd gone online and read about four or five more. So yeah. I spent a lot of time with verse 20. So now you're, now you're all curious. Where did I end up and why was it so hard? At first, first blush, it probably doesn't look that way. So the second reason, he reconciles all through him. He reconciles all through him. This is a deceptively hard passage to interpret, believe it or not. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven. Now through the years, there, the reason it's kind of hard is because at first blush, one might think that this is saying, and some have taken it this way. There are, there, there's a very small uh, number of Christians. In, in fact, in Germany, there was a, a group of pietists that believed this. They literally believed that every single sentient creature in all heaven and earth for all time, wherever they've been, that includes the devil, by the way, that every single one of them is reconciled to God. In the end, you're going to be sharing heaven. Lucifer's going to be on your left hand. Hitler's going to be over there on your right. That's how, that's how they take this passage, that absolutely everything has been reconciled through Christ. Well, all 15 of those commentaries were all trying to kind of 
show you where this is going, and I took a little bit here, and I took a little, I was kind of a seed picker, like Paul, you know, uh, and I took a little bit here and a little bit there, and this is, this is kind of where I ended up. Um, do you remember last time, and you have to, so to, to get where I'm going with this, do you remember last time how we talked about the fact that Paul was not interested in giving that detailed list of all the darkness where he talks about thrones and, and, and dominions and that. And I said, he's not giving a detailed list. He's kind of saying whatever. It's almost dismissive. He's not denying that they exist. He's just saying, I don't need to know, but whatever it might be. It began, it began with the word weather, in, whether it be, um, and that was the Greek word ete. Ete introduced it, and it was sort of a, yeah, I'm not really drilling down here. I'm just saying whatever's in the darkness he created all things. He's over all things. Do you remember that? Yes? Sort of? You tracking with me? Okay. Um, the same word is used here. That ete is used when Paul writes that Jesus reconciles all things, whether in heaven or earth. It's that, it's that same kind of phrase. It's that same kind of wording. Paul is saying, I believe, that Jesus reconciles all things which can be reconciled just whatever that might be, that there, there is no other one who is doing that work. In other words, I believe that what the, concept, the emphasis of that text is not the word all. So if Paul were saying it, I don't think he would say, all things in heaven and earth, earth have been reconciled through Jesus. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's concentrating that it's through Jesus that all things are reconciled. Now, does that make a difference to the meaning? I think it does. I think logically it does. Let me give you an example of this. Say you and I were having an argument, and you're an idiot um, for a moment here in this, in this scenario. Not, not normally. I'm just saying in this, in this make-believe scenario. Say we're having this conversation, and you're like, well, as far as I've heard, every, all the government agencies get to tax you. Right, like the like, like like the ag department gets to tax you, and the state department gets to tax you, and yeah, they all can send you a tax bill at the end of the year. Well, and and I say to them, uh, <clears throat> no, no, all income in the U.S. is taxed by the. You should know, IRS. Right, it's all taxed by the IRS. Now you wouldn't then go, whoa, wait a second, you're saying they take all my money. And I'd say, no, it just feels like they're taking all your money. But they don't literally take all. I'm just saying all income. Yes, are there tax-exempt kinds of income? Yes, of course there are. I'm just saying whatever can be taxed, it's all taxed by the IRS. Are you tracking with me with the logic of it? Paul's not saying literally the devil has been reconciled to God through what Jesus has done. He's saying all which can be all those under the Old Testament that were looking forward to Jesus without even knowing fully that they were looking forward to him. They were bringing all of the ritual sacrifices. They were going through all of what God had laid out for them. They were bringing it to the temple. They were offering their sacrifices. The, the priests were doing the work you know, for them, mediating for them. All of that, whatever is now in heaven, as the time Paul's writing this, all those Old Testament saints had gone on to be with the Lord, all those that were in heaven that would be reconciled, and all those in the present church when Paul's writing this, and all that would come to dwell on earth who would believe in Jesus Christ, all are reconciled in him because that's where the fullness of God's, God dwells. He's not saying all creation 
is reconciled with God now. It's all, and people, some people read that, especially for some reason in liberal churches, they will say, oh, all we have to do is just go tell everybody it's, it's taken care of. So when you preach the gospel, you're not looking for a response. You're not looking for repentance and faith. You're just saying, hey, by the way, did you know you're okay? It's just the way, it's all taken care of. You're good. That is not the message of the God. We're going to find that out in the very next verse, which we're going to look at next week and uh, after this passage of verse 23. Couldn't Buddha reconcile some people? I mean, some people have legitimately, seriously you know, believed in Buddha and, and, and trusted that that would get them there. Wouldn't that reconcile them? Because they made the effort. And the answer is no. No, Buddha can't do that. What about Muhammad? A lot of people have trusted in Muhammad. Can Muhammad be the mediator between them and God? The answer is no. What about all the Greek pantheon of gods and the Roman pantheon of gods? What about the Druids? They're pretty cool. You know, what about those people that are going back to, to that type of Druidic worship today? Couldn't they be reconciled to God through that? No, no. All that are reconciled are reconciled only through Jesus, for in Jesus is the fullness of God. So let's review real quickly so far. There's no reconciliation apart from Jesus Christ. God is pleased that his fullness dwell only in him. By Christ and Christ alone are all things reconciled. How does he do that? Let's look at the third point. He makes peace by Christ's atoning death for sinners. Okay, look at, we're we're in, I'm actually taking like a part of uh, two verses and another, 2B through 22A. You can do that, you know. Uh, Making peace by the blood of his cross, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his, his death. Now, to recon- we haven't even talked about what reconciliation means. I'll, it, maybe it's good to back up. To reconcile means that we make peace. To make peace, scripturally, is to reconcile. It's a word that, that often is used of restoring a friendship that's been broken. So two people used to be friends. They're now at enmity, reconciliation. You bring them back together. First, he says, it's by the blood of his cross. This, by the way, I think it should be obvious, does not mean that the cross itself was bleeding. When it says the blood of the cross, it's saying the blood of Christ, which was offered by way of the cross, by by virtue of his sacrificial death, that blood which he poured out for us. It is the blood of his cross. Then in verse 22, it it changes from saying making peace to reconcile. We say that's the same word, right? It's not an identical word, but a synonym. To, recognize, to um, reconcile through his body of flesh by his death. What is that saying? Well, it's saying a lot of things. You, you could probably preach a whole sermon series on that. But for one, one thing for sure that it's saying is that Jesus Christ actually physically died on the cross. That he was put to death. And in the early church, there were various heresies. And, and people had, they, they had a pro- some people had a problem with the idea that the Son of God could become man. Because that was part of the material universe. And they, they thought the material universe was bad. So they tried all these workarounds to somehow not have Christ actually dying on the cross. Some of them actually would teach that, oh, well, there's the spirit of Christ. And then there was this normal, just ordinary Joe Jesus. And then the Christ came upon him. You know, and then they, they were together for a while, but then when Jesus goes to the cross, the Christ goes bye bye and gets out of there so that the, 
That's not it. That's not how are we reconciled to God? By God's own Son, in whom the fullness of God dwelt. And he died. He shed his blood. His body was pierced. His body died on the cross for us. We, you know, as we look at this, again, we, we need to emphasize the word his. It is by his cross, his body, his death. There is no other sacrifice for sins. You say, what about all that blood of bulls and goats that were shed, you know, that was shed all the way through the Old Testament period? And there were a lot of them. Just the dedication of the temple, it was tens of thousands that were brought. Didn't they make a way? No. They were the shadow of the substance. There is no sacrifice other than the one which is offered by Christ himself that brings us to God. No other bridge. Jesus Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. For what reason? Why would God do that? Why did, recon- why did he do that? He reconciles sinners in order to present them holy before him. Look back at verse 21. You know, we kind of were... Um, looking at the aspects of his death for us. But sandwiched between there, it says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And then if you leapfrog over that, then it says in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach. So why why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to shed his blood? Why did his body have to be put to death? It was to take Vile sinners, those that truly were his enemies. We were hostile. We were alienated. And to present us holy and blameless before him above reproach. The purpose of reconciliation is not just peace with God. Yes, it is. I mean, certainly we needed that. We had to be brought uh, through that to God and only through that. That was the only way we could have peace. But the peace wasn't just for our sake. It was so that we might be holy unto him. You know, when the war ended in Europe and we made peace with Germany, we didn't do it by just saying, you know what? Hey, let's just stop fighting. What are we doing here? Come on, let's cut that out. Let's just stop shooting at each other. That's not how the war ended. That was not the the way in which it took place. That'd be more like North Korea, the situation there. But part of victory in Europe, part of what that, what that end of the war entailed was an end to the Nazis. Like, we made peace with them, and part of the condition of that was, you don't get to be Nazis anymore. No more National Socialism. Hitler's out of there. No, you know, even if he had survived the bunker, he would, yeah, he would not have been left in power. When we have peace with God, we do not willfully continue to serve the devil and the flesh and the world. Christ gives you his righteousness, but not just so that you would take that righteousness and do with it whatever you want to do. He gives you that righteousness so that, so that we might be an offering to God. All right, now we're going to take a little deep dive here, so stay with me because this is very cool, but you, it, it, it's kind of like spaghetti. It's all twisted and entwined um, with each other here. But if you want to hear something fascinating, the words here, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach, actually have an Old Testament connection. And do you know what that connection is? 
It was the type of sacrifices they would bring to the temple. In other words, the same words used of how Christ wants to present us would be the words that would be used of the, the correct sort of offerings. You remember, you couldn't bring a lamb that was blemished. You couldn't bring one with a broken leg. You couldn't bring one that was deformed in any way, shape, or form, blind, or whatever the case might be. It had to be a perfectly blameless, perfect offering. Now, this might seem confusing, but if you really stop and think about this for a moment, if Jesus is the Lamb of God, why would his intention be to present us as an offering? That's priestly, isn't it? If he's presenting us in this way, then now Jesus, who is the Lamb of God and the sacrifice, becomes the priest who is presenting us. Do you see how it's all intertwined? Jesus is the temple. He's the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. He is the sacrifice. His blood, his body, and only his blood and body could bring us peace. In order what? For him as a priest to present us holy and blameless before his Father. Consider a couple parallels which I'm sure already are rushing to your mind. Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What mercy? the mercy in Christ through his body and blood, um, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see how it all intertwines? Or what about this, 1 Corinthians six twenty? For you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. The reconciliation we have with the Lord is not so that we can go on willfully living in sin, but so that we might be offered to God as acceptable holy sacrifices to him. Do you see that? Reconciliation is not as some people take it. I mean, some people grab hold of it and they hear the gospel and they go, yeah, that sounds good to me. You mean I get to stay just as I am without one plea? Um, You know that? And that's... That's correct. That's how we come to Christ, just as we are. But some people hear in that, oh, and then you stay that way. You get to do whatever you want to do, and now you've just got Christ to cloak your sin, and you just do whatever you want to. It's not that way. When Jesus was traveling through Samaria on one occasion, you remember this from John chapter 4, he goes through a village called Sychar, and uh, he stops there by a well. He's tired, he's thirsty. How many have heard this story once or twice or 10,000? Yeah, and he stops, and there's a lady, and she comes there. It's noon, and she's drawing water. He's thirsty. He says, why don't you give me a drink? And she's like, yeah, you're talking to me? Are you, talk- are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you, you know, there's no, they didn't jihad. The uh, Samaritans and Jews, they did not get along. They needed reconciliation. Uh, But that's another point. But anyway, so she's like, why are you talking to me? He says, if you knew who it was that was asking for a drink of water, he would give you water that would well up from within you and give you eternal life. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the the life, the new life in the spirit and, uh, and all of that. And so she... There's a, there's a few more things, but I'm, I'm cutting it short kind of. But, but eventually she brings him into that argument. And it's kind of like, um, kind of like that Psalm 68, because she's, she's not about Jerusalem at all. She's a Samaritan, and they worshiped on Mount Gerasim. And uh, that, that has a lot of Old Testament significance, and it would have been more attached to the northern tribes. And so she's like, where are we really supposed to worship? Oh, prophet of God, you, do you think we should worship here? 
Gerasim, are you going to start a fight with me? Or what about in Jerusalem? That's where you guys think we're supposed to worship God. And, you know, I think the Jewish reader would be surprised that Jesus doesn't really go into that debate, except to say that salvation is of the Jews, meaning it's, it flows out of, out of Judaism. That's where salvation comes. But he takes her in a whole different direction, doesn't he? He says it's not about either one of those places or those mountains. And ultimately, he points her to himself in whom the fullness of God dwells. Because the temple, the ultimate temple, is standing in front of her. Yeah, she could look off to the mountaintops and, and be confused. All she has to do look, is look right in front of her, and there is the temple of God where the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And because of this, reconciliation is in him alone. We were sinners. We were, we were hostile to God. We were at war. We didn't know it, maybe. A lot of people don't understand that. But we needed reconciliation, and that reconciliation only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of his cross, the body that was put to death there. He didn't do it so that we could remain in our sin. He did it. Having given the ultimate sacrifice, being presented as a high priest, bringing himself as the offering, He turns around then and he presents us as well as a kind of sacrifice. Having done all of the work for us, having given us his righteousness and his holiness, he then presents us back to God to be holy and blameless before him. Christian, you know this. I know you know this, but we need to be reminded that we've been redeemed by the Lord, that we've been reconciled by him, not that we live in sin, but that in repentant faith we seek his holiness until that day takes us home. You know, if if today uh, you're not a believer and you didn't realize that you were alienated from God and that you needed reconciliation, I'm here to tell you that that is the case. That apart from Jesus Christ, you are at enmity with God. The Bible says that, that you were apart from him, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, um, you, you were hostile of mind, you needed reconciliation. And the good news is that reconciliation, the work of reconciliation, has taken place. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, God makes his appeal through us. Come, be reconciled to God. And I believe that every Christian has the right to make this offer, don't you? That, that on God's behalf, we hold out the gospel and the message is, come, be reconciled to him. Christ has done the work. Come and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you glory. We give you thanks for a work that we didn't even know we needed. We were apart from you. We were, we were dead. We were blind We really didn't know, Lord, that we were headed toward a Christless eternity. And yet, by your grace, you have called us by the gospel. Thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you have done to reconcile the world to yourself through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his blood upon the cross, for his body that was put to death there. And Lord, for those of us who know you through that gospel, Lord, may we remind ourselves that we are to be living sacrifices. Help us not to crawl off the 
off the altar, but to remain there, to remain offered to you, to seek holiness, to turn from sin in every form that we know and take hold of Christ always. And Lord, if there's a person here today that doesn't know you, I pray that you would call him him or her to you, that they would turn to Christ and, and that they'd be reconciled to you through him. We pray in his name. Amen.